Let's take our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34. Over the last several weeks, we've heard that we are engaged in a war with an invisible enemy. Except the enemy that I'm referring to this morning is not a virus. It's worry. The worry that I'm referring to is a feeling of being powerless. The feeling of being unable to cope with threatening events. And let's ask the question, how many of you facing the current circumstances have found yourself overwhelmed by worry? Maybe you've thought you're powerless. You're not able to cope with whatever the event may be. Now, maybe it's not the current event. Maybe there's been some other event in your life. But somewhere your thoughts have been racing. You're worried about what if this happens or what if that happens or what could this be or what could that be? So what are we to do? How do we as believers cope with these unknowns and not be overcome with worry? Well, let me tell you what the world says. The world gives a great therapeutic response. By the way, that's sarcasm if you missed it. In the book, Worry-Free Living, on pages 113 to 114, it says, We suggest setting aside 15 minutes in the morning and another 15 minutes in the evening for active worry. Worry-free living involves confining the natural worry we all feel into a designated time slot of 1% out of a 12-hour day. Sounds great, right? You have 15 minutes in the morning to worry, you got 15 minutes in the evening to worry, and the rest of the day you don't worry. My friends, I've got news for you. The Bible tells us not to worry twice a day. The Bible tells us to not worry at all. Three times in the text that we're going to be looking at here this morning, in verse 25, 31, and 34, Jesus specifically tells us, do not be worried. Do not worry, and do not worry. Now, he's not telling us don't have concerns. We have concerns. We should have concerns. But the term that he's using here for worry, merimanao, means to feel powerless or unable to cope with a threatening situation. See, my friends, when we're dealing with situations or circumstances outside of our control... And when they begin, we begin to feel powerless or we are, feel that we're unable to cope with what's going on and we begin to worry, we're in essence telling God, I don't know if you're in control of this situation. How many of you have, have said that? Oh, none of us. None of us would say, oh yes, I told God this week, I don't know if he's in control. But how many of us over the past two weeks, dealing with the current state of affairs, have we be gone to bed at night or woke up in the morning or going through the day and at some moment just were overwhelmed, unable to cope, powerless, just not knowing what to do or where to turn or what to think. Mind's racing. And my friend, when you have found yourself in that situation, what we have said, what you have said or I have said or any of us have said is, God, I don't know if you're in control. Let me put it this way. Worry is faith in the negatives. That's what worry is. Worry is faith in the negatives. It's not faith in God. It's faith in the negatives. 
Worry is trusting in the unpleasant. Not trusting in God, it's trusting in the unpleasant. Worry is the assurance of disaster. That's not, that's not trust in God. That's not assurance of victory. And worry is belief in defeat. I'll say that again. Worry is faith in the negative, trust in the unpleasant, assurance of disaster, and belief in defeat. Now, friends, if you and I are going to overcome worry, if we are going to follow Christ's command to not worry, then we've got to come to the grips with the fact that we are engaged in a war. And this war is spiritual warfare. And we are engaged in a trifecta of an enemy. We've got the world, we've got the flesh, we've got the devil. And the world, the flesh, and the devil want nothing more than for you and I to doubt God's power, to doubt God's promises, to doubt God's providence. They will use worry as their weapon to cause you to doubt God, to doubt His power, to doubt His promises, to doubt His providence. And when they can get you and I to worry, that old enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil imprisons you, imprisons me in an endless cycle of worry. In essence, we become spiritual prisoners of war. But hey, here's good news. We don't have to be prisoners of war. We don't have to be stuck, imprisoned in an endless cycle. We can win the war over worry. How do we do that? Well, we're going to see here this morning in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, that we can win the war over worry by doing two things. One, trusting in God's providence. Trusting in God's providence. And secondly, seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness. Seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness. Now, as we think about that first key to winning the war over worry, trusting God's providence, we're going to look at verses 25 to 32 and verse 34. Now, as I stated at the outset, three times in this passage, Jesus commands us not to worry. But I want you to focus on something here for just a moment before we really get flesh out the text. The command in verse 25 and verse 31, do not worry, or don't be worried, simply means do not worry. In other words, stop it. Quit worrying. Don't do it any longer. But then in verse 34, it says, don't start worrying. So, Two of the commands, two of the three commands tells us, stop worrying, don't, 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 don't do it, just stop it. And then the last one means don't start doing it. In essence, if you're worrying, stop it. And if you haven't started worrying, don't. See, Christ is telling us not to worry about the basics. Why? Because God's got it. God's got it, folks. Now, the command here, do not worry, doesn't mean we have a lack of concern. 
The fact that God can supply our basic needs doesn't mean we should be unwilling to work. We know there's plenty of biblical principles about uh, working and eating and so forth. We have a biblical responsibility to do our part. But he's talking about when, when you're overwhelmed with where's these things going to come from? How am I going to get my basic needs met? When I begin to worry, when I begin to be overwhelmed uh, with, with, with doubts, when I'm feeling unable to cope or whatever it may be. We're displaying a lack of trust in God's ability to supply our need. The biggest indicator that many people, you and I, Christians included, are wearing is stockpiling. People are stockpiling toilet paper, Lysol, hand wash, latest one I heard today, orange juice. And they're stockpiling these things as if they can somehow build a hedge around themselves against whatever may or may not be coming. And I want to be very clear here, Christian. Stockpiling is an attempt to determine your destiny apart from faith and trust in the living God. Now listen, the Bible clearly tells us that we, there's nothing wrong with that. We should have a savings account. The Bible tells us there's nothing wrong with making sound investments. The Bible says there's nothing wrong with having insurance. Those are all good things. They are provisions that are God-given, sensible provisions for the average person. But going out and, and, and buying every roll of toilet paper or every uh, 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 bottle of uh, Lysol spray or every hand wash container or every bottle of orange juice that you can somehow get your hands on, not only is not sensible, but it's an attempt to determine your destiny apart from God. Look at Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or to what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, my friends, God sustains our lives. God gave us our bodies. And if He can sustain us and if He can give us these bodies, then we ought to be able to trust Him to provide the food and the clothing that He knows we need. And when we begin to worry over the lack of some basic need, all we're doing is giving in to the enemy. All we're doing is immobilizing and imprisoning on ourselves. And focusing on worry rather than the God who's got it. When we refuse to trust that God can supply these basic needs, we're immobilized, we're imprisoned. We need to remember, folks. That ultimately everything that we have has come from God's good hands. 
Certainly we've worked for things. Certainly we've earned wages and purchased things. But to understand, when you back it all the way up, who gave you the ability to do what you do so that you can earn a living? It's God. And when a need arises, and they do, you don't need to worry. For our God will supply. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, reap, or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? You see what Jesus is saying here is that the birds of the air, they don't sow, they don't plant, they don't harvest, they don't gather their harvest into their barn, and yet somehow they're fed every day. They're kept alive by their Creator. Again, let's not misinterpret or misunderstand the passage. This is not an encouragement for you and I to be idle. Again, consider a bird. A bird is certainly not idle. A bird is not lazy. They work, work hard for their living. They don't just sit around on some twig and wait for food to drop into their mouths. No, they're busy. They're busy gathering insects and worms. They're busy preparing their nest. They're busy for caring for their young and teaching them to fly and so on and so forth. And even as the seasons change, they, they, they travel from one zone to another zone, whether it's to a warmer climate or a cooler climate. But as you consider the bird, bear in mind two things. One, they're never guilty of overdoing a good thing. They don't stockpile worms. They don't stockpile twigs and stuff for their nest. They take just what they need for the nest they need. They take just the food they need for the daily provision of food they need. They don't overdo a good thing. And second, when birds prepare their nest and train their young, etc., they're acting instinctively. They're doing what God designed them to do. He's endowed them with an instinct to go out and do those things. And because they're endowed with that, they don't worry. They're carefree. And yet, how many of us are careworn? We're not carefree, we're careworn. We're worn out. Friends, if the birds who cannot in any real sense plan ahead have no reason to worry where their meal is coming from tomorrow, then certainly you as followers of Christ, endowed with some degree of common sense and intelligence, who can take thought for your future, should not be filled with apprehension of what's going to happen. If God can provide even for the, these lower creatures, these birds of the air, how much more will He care for you? Now I want you to think about this before we go to the next verse. The relationship between bird and God is just simply creature and creator. He's their creator. But when it comes to you and me, friends, we are made in the image and likeness of God. He's not just our creator. He is our heavenly Father. 
So when he says, Aren't you, don't you have more value than they? The answer is yes, we do. Because we're not just some creature. We're his children. And if he can make sure that the birds have everything they need for each day, regardless of whether a storm comes out or whether uh, something transpires that they have no control of, then my friends, how much more is he going to meet our basic needs? Even when facing difficult days. Verse 27. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Think about this. A single hour. Now, a single hour doesn't seem like a lot when you're talking about 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, 70, 80, 90 years. I mean, when we start talking in terms of decades and half centuries... One hour doesn't seem like a lot. It's a small thing. But my friends, you can have all the worry in the world and it will not add one small, minute piece of time to your life. No one is able to add an hour to their life by worrying. In fact, the old adage goes, that man worried himself To life? No. That man worried himself to death. You will not have a longer lifespan worrying yourself. Verse 28 to 30. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? The Lord now gives us a second example from nature. First he told us, consider the birds. Now consider the flowers. He really, well, Listen, when you're worried, folks, you need to stop and smell the roses, okay? Sit back and listen to the birds chirping. It was a beautiful thing. The other morning I woke up, It was still dark outside, and yet I heard birds. Consider the birds. They don't have a worry in the world, and their basic needs are always met. You know, we've had a mild winter, so we're seeing flowers beginning to pop up and beginning to bud, and even some have even already uh, uh, bloomed. So consider the flowers. And he wants you to understand, when you look at these flowers, he wants you to know that he can provide what your body needs, what you need to cover yourself. He can provide it, if you can. He wants to show us in verses 28 to 30 just how senseless it is to worry. He says, observe. That is, take a careful Close study of these lilies. Now the Greek word here that's translated as lily simply means wild flower. Wild flower. 
And it's obviously that whatever these wildflowers are, they're connected to the grass of the field. And it's very possible that Jesus was not referring to any particular kind of flower, but, you know, he's there on, he's, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and the, he, he looks out over the valley, the people can see the valley behind them, and he says, look at that valley, look at the flowers in that field, look at the grass. Look at the splendor of the landscape at this time of the year. Observe how they grow. Let's think about this for a moment. Flowers grow without any toil on their part. These wildflowers grow without any care being bestowed on them by any human individual. And yet they grow easily and freely and gorgeously. They don't spin a single thread. And yet, he says, not even Solomon in all his splendor was arrayed like one of these. In other words, Solomon's finest apparel was at best a mimicry, a derivative of that which in nature comes fresh from the hand of God. The pristine beauty of creation cannot be matched by what we can do. And yet, the simultaneous outburst of flowers in the spring of each year just as suddenly vanishes. As summer ends, fall comes, and winter sets in. Today, the flowers are fully alive, they're adorning the fields, but tomorrow, it'll be nothing more than just grass. Nothing more than uncultivated grass that will be chopped down, mowed down, and used as fuel for the domestic oven. And he gives us an argument here in verse 30 that argues from the least to the greatest. He says, if God provides for short-lived grass, he'll certainly provide for his children who are destined for eternal glory. You are far better than some temporary flower. If he can provide for the short-lived flower, whose only purpose is to eventually die and be burned up as fuel in an oven, how much more will he provide for you who are destined for eternal glory? Now he argues from the greater to the lesser. If God can deck the wildflowers with beautiful garments, then He can certainly make sure that you have the basic garment that you have need of. And then He calls us people of little faith. Now this, this phrase... People or men of little faith is used several times in the Gospel of Matthew. And let's just take a moment and, and overview the passages and see what they're what each time he uses this phrase, what it's connected to. Okay, first we have here we, dis, we display little faith when we worry about our basic needs, Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 8:26. It was their fear or worry of drowning at, at, at sea during a storm. 
In Matthew 14, Peter in particular was walking on the water and then began to sink. And Christ said, you, you man of little faith. He, he was overcome with worry. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, again the disciples failed to remember the lessons they had received in connection with Christ's miracle working power and they began to worry. And in each of these situations through the Gospel of Matthew where he calls them people or men of little faith, it's connected with an event by which they begin to worry. They begin to feel powerless. They begin to, to, to uh, be unable to cope with the circumstance or the situation that they find themselves in. And the reality is, friends, that we're not displaying faith in our good God who can supply all of our daily basic needs we are displaying no faith in Him when we have imprisoned ourselves in the vault of worry. Sitting around feeling helpless and powerless and unable to cope with what's going on. We're displaying a lack of faith. Now he's not saying they're not saved. These were the disciples. We're in good company here, folks. These are people who walked with Christ for three and a half years. And they struggle with faith. So don't sit back and think that you're going to have it all together, because we're not. We're going to have our moments too. But let's make an honest self-evaluation that when we give in to worry, when we find ourselves overwhelmed, when we're unable to cope, it's not because God has failed us, it's because we have failed ourselves. We haven't displayed faith in an almighty, all-powerful God. We haven't trusted in God's providence. Verse 31 and 32. Do not worry then saying what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Because God provides food and basic clothing not only for the birds and flowers but for His precious human creatures, we need to stop worrying. We should not be spending energy fretting over these things, folks. Worry has no place in the life of a disciple. It's the Gentiles. Now here he's using Gentiles to describe the unbelievers. It's unbelievers who are fretting over and worrying about things. Why? Because an unbeliever has no sense of God's care for them. An unbeliever has no reason to focus their energy elsewhere. But child of God, you have a heavenly Father. And you and I, we ought to be focusing on our heavenly Father, on His power, on His promises, on His provisions, in difficult times, particularly. And be able to lay our head on the pillow at night regardless of what Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever other crackpot news stations out there, as far as I'm concerned, they're all bobbleheads that don't have a clue what's going on. Because every one of them discounts the God factor. All they're interested in is stirring you up to click on their article on the internet or to turn on their news station to give them ratings. Here's a better idea. Turn the boob tube off Turn the internet off. Stop reading the garbage. Start reading the Bible. 
You find yourself starting to worry. You find yourself unable to cope. You find yourself being overwhelmed. Get in the book. Take a moment to discover something about God. And he says right here, God knows all your needs. Man, we got to be pursuing a different course than the world. We need to be distinctive. We can't afford to sink to the level of the Gentiles. They don't have anybody to trust in. That's why they're afraid. That's why they're filled with worry, why they're filled with doubt. If God supplies for the birds and the flowers, He'll do it for you. Now, I'm sure there's somebody listening right now who's thinking, well, now, now, Pastor, if God supplies food for birds, how come there's starving people out there? Now, let me just very briefly say this. Jesus is not teaching here that every case of hunger is going to be satisfied with food. Even in his own day, not every hungry person was fed. And surely over the course of human history, many people have gone hungry. But his point is this. You need to focus your mind and channel your efforts and direct your energy not to these basic needs, but to God. His point is that if we would focus our minds and channel our efforts and direct our energies to God's eternal purposes over our bodily wants and desires, then you and I are going to be able to sleep well at night, put our head on the pillow and go to bed and not worry that our basic needs are going to be met because they will. I want you to ask yourself this. How can I spend less time worrying about blank and more time serving the Lord? Now you put whatever you need to put in that blank. How can I spend less time worrying about blank and more time serving the Lord? Listen, man, you, put, you start focusing on doing something for the Lord, you won't have time to worry. How can I spend less time worrying about blank and more time praying for the sick? How can I spend less time worrying about blank and more time learning the Bible? Listen, right there, you got three things right there to keep you busy, keep you occupied, keep your mind focused. Spend more time in the Bible, spend more time praying for the sick, spend more time serving the Lord, you won't have time to worry. Verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. That's the verse that tells us, if you haven't started, don't start. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Because God cares for our needs, we do not need to worry. We don't have to start worrying. He's appealing to common sense. He says that we worry about what's happening tomorrow may not happen. Think about that. How many times have you worried about something for nothing? You were all worried, all worked up, and nothing didn't happen. All you did was waste time and energy that could have been better spent on doing something else. Reserve that energy for today. Listen, every day's got troubles. Deal with the troubles you got today. Deal with the, the trouble you know, not the trouble you don't know. Stop adding to today's burdens with burdens that may or may not come tomorrow. Because I'm going to tell you something. 
All the worry about tomorrow or the next day or next month or three months from now, whatever, is not going to change the outcome. All it's going to do is make you more depressed. All it's going to do is make you more overwhelmed, feel more powerless, feel feel more feelings of being unable to cope. Listen, the burdens of today are enough. Let God take care of them. God's certain promises of care for our needs doesn't mean that life's going to be without trouble. But it means that when trouble comes, we can trust God to provide through His grace. We can trust Him today without worrying about tomorrow. Now don't mistake what I said. Planning is time well spent. Planning for tomorrow is time well spent. But worrying about tomorrow, obsessing about tomorrow, trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, that's wasted time. And i got to be honest, sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between planning, good planning, and worrying. But let me have you give you a little guideline here to differentiate between the two. Careful planning is thinking ahead about goals, steps, schedules, and here's the key, trusting in God's guidance. When done well, planning alleviates worry. Worriers, though, on the other hand, are consumed by fear... And simply aren't trusting God. They let their plans interfere with their relationship with God. Don't let worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God. Trust in His providence. Now let's look at verse 33. Because I said the first thing we got to do, if we're going to win the war against worry, we have got to trust in God's providence. The second thing we need to do is in verse 33. And that's to submit to God's priorities. We need to submit to God's priorities. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's our second point. Submit to God's priorities. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now against the Gentiles who craved food, drink, garments, etc., he says to his followers, don't worry about those things. Here's what you do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now the word seek here, zeteo, means to look for something. No, no, no. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean to look for something. The word seek here means to turn to God and to strive humbly and sincerely to follow and obey Him. You want to win the war against worry? Turn to God and humbly and sincerely follow and obey Him. Now that that takes effort. That don't happen by accident. You've got to turn to Him. You've got to strive to humble yourself and sincerely follow and obey Him. And we're to do this first. Now the word first here, protos, doesn't mean, well, this is the first in a series of things you do. No. This is your priority. This needs to take prominence above everything else. You want to win the war against, well, against worry? Listen. This is, this is the most important thing you need to do. And this will, this will come... Right out of, you trusting in God's providence, let me tell you, you will submit to God's priorities. You will submit to God's priorities. This is of greatest importance to God, seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Now, God's kingdom is His sphere of eternal rule. His kingdom exists in several manifestations. Let me just give you a brief definition of each. First of all, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the, 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 the entire created realm. 
He's established his throne in the heavens. He sovereignly rules over all things. Psalm 103.19 When we talk about the kingdom of God, not only is it universal, but it's also spiritual. Right now, the kingdom of God is made up of those who have repented and submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. My kingdom, if it were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. In John 18, he also in John 3 defined who is in his kingdom. Those who have been born again or born from above. And there's a third aspect to God's kingdom, and that is that it will, is a literal kingdom that will someday be established on earth, Daniel 2.44. But right now, the kingdom of God is in its spiritual form. This is what Christ said in the model to pray in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Those two statements are parallel. How do you seek first? How do you... Humbly and sincerely follow and obey Him, obey God, you do His will. Seeking God's kingdom means doing His will. And irrevocably connected to His kingdom is His righteousness to which we are to strive. Now what's His righteousness? The word righteousness is His justice, His uprightness, His standard to which we are to conform. Richard Strauss said this, God's righteousness is the natural expression of His holiness. So what does it mean to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? It's seek to do His will and conform to His holiness. The righteous man shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. In fact, it is the righteousness of God that's been manifested, witnessed by the law and the prophets, and given to those who believe. If you've never repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and received Him as your Savior and Lord, then you've never received His righteousness. But every child of God who has confessed their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection... whose fruit bears witness to that as they submit to his lordship, then they can, you can, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Sproul said this way, righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. Before I leave this, I just want to uh, uh, say this. Don't confuse spirituality with Righteousness. Don't confuse spirituality with righteousness. The danger of confusing the two is that many who claim to be spiritual are not righteous. Spirituality can be conforming to various disciplines, such as studying the Bible and praying, attending church and evangelizing. Now listen, don't mistake what I'm saying. Those things, those spiritual disciplines are good. We ought to study the Bible. We ought to be praying. We ought to be attending the church. We ought to be evangelizing. But those things are worthless if they don't drive us to be righteous. If you read the Bible, if you're praying, you're coming to church, you're evangelizing, and yet you've got no desire to conform your life to His holiness, those things are worthless. And so if you simply see spirituality as the goal of your Christian life, you're going to fail miserably. 
If you're just, well, I did my checklist for today, well, then you failed. Because you can do all those things and never attain the righteousness of God. Look at Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, the Pharisees were doing all of those things. They read their Bible, they prayed, they went to the synagogue, they quote-unquote evangelized. And they were no more righteous than my thumbtack. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. We need to submit ourselves to God's priorities. And as we do, our minds will be less and less preoccupied with what's going on in this world and more and more occupied, more and more centered on Him. And He makes a wonderful promise in our text that when we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness... He'll provide for our needs. We have no reason to be anxious. We have no reason to worry. We have no reason to fear the future. And my friends, what a wonderful way that is to live. Worry presents us with a dual temptation. To distrust God and to substitute fear for our, for what, for our God. Worry means we're paying attention to what we cannot change. Instead of putting our energies to work in effective ways. You know, our text gave us seven reasons not to worry. Let me, let me go through those seven reasons with you. Number one. Here's reason number one not to worry. The same God who created life in you can be trusted with the details of your life. Verse 25. The same God who created life in you can be trusted with the details of your life. Second reason not to worry. Worrying about the future hampers your efforts for today. Verse 26. Worrying about the future hampers your efforts for today. Third reason not to worry. Worrying is more harmful than helpful. Verse 27. Worrying is more harmful than helpful. Verse 27. Fourth reason not to worry. God does not ignore those who depend on Him. God does not ignore those who depend on Him. Verses 28 to 30. Fifth reason not to worry. Worry shows a lack of faith in God. Worry shows a lack of faith in God. Verse 31 and 32. Number six, sixth reason. There are real challenges God wants us to pursue, but worrying will keep you from them. Worrying will keep you from the things God wants you to pursue. Verse 33. And number seven, seventh reason not to worry. Living one day at a time, Keeps us from being consumed with worry. Verse 34. I'll re, I'll, let me restate those. Number one. The same God who created life in you can be trusted with the details of your life. Verse 25. Number two. Worrying about the future hampers your efforts for today. Verse 26. Number three. Worrying is more harmful than helpful. Verse 27. Number four. God does not ignore those who depend on Him. Verse 28 to 30. Number five. Worry shows a lack of faith in God, verse 31 and 32. Number six, worrying will keep us from the challenges God wants us to pursue. Worrying will keep us from the challenges God wants us to pursue, verse 33. And number seven, living one day at a time keeps us from being consumed with worry, verse 34. Friends, we can win the war over worry. We can win the war over worry by trusting in God's providence. And by submitting to God's priorities. 
And when we trust in God's providence, we won't have time to worry. When we submit to His priorities, when we seek first to honor Him as King and conform our lives to His righteousness, worry will find us otherwise occupied. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for the time this morning in your word, the opportunity to consider this command to not worry, especially in the light of the days in which we live. Worrying seems to be the norm. It doesn't have to be. So Father, I pray that you would forgive us, Father, for those times when we have worried, those times when we are worrying, those times that we probably still will worry. Father, when we find ourselves helpless, we find ourselves unable to cope, Oh, Lord, I pray that you might bring these verses to our mind. That you might remind us, don't worry, don't worry, don't start worrying. Simply trust you and submit to you. So, Father, I pray to that end you might give us the victory. No, it won't be easy, Lord, because we are fearful creatures. But we're reminded that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of faith, and of a sound mind. I pray that you'd give us the mind of Christ. I pray that you'd help us to focus on you. Trust in you. And submit to you. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.